Section two of The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in April two thousand nineteen. Section two Introduction Part two. From these early travels he brought back, however, something more than acquaintance with the waste places of the earth beautiful scenery or strange types of humanity in these wanderings he also saw something of the elemental conditions of life where a man's hand must needs keep his head an experience too often denied to the rich man of our latter-day civilization a bibliophile a collector of china and drawings and indeed of all things rare and beautiful with a fine taste intensified by observation and study his happiest hours were probably those when the unsought adventure called for rapid decision and prompt action. But it should be understood that the adventure must be unsought, for no one was ever less cast in the mould of a Don Quixote. His courage was of that peculiar calm variety which means a pleasurable quickening of the pulse in the hour of danger. On one occasion in his youth he hired a boat to take him somewhere off the coast to his ship lying far out to sea. He was alone, steering the little bark rowed by a couple of stalwart fishermen. Suddenly, when far removed from land and equally distant from his goal, the two ruffians gave him the choice between payment of a large sum or being pitched into the water. He listened quietly and motioned to them to pass his dressing-bag. They obeyed, already in imagination fingering the English lord's ransom. The situation was, however, reversed, when he extracted not a well-stuffed pocket-book but a revolver, and pointing it at the pair sternly bade them row on, or he would shoot. The chuckle with which he recalled what was to him an eminently delectable episode still remains with his hearer truth compels his biographer to admit that he did not always emerge so triumphantly from his adventures his next long journey was to south africa from durban he wrote to the present writer announcing his intention to go elephant hunting and hunting he went but the parts of hunter and hunted were reversed accompanied by a single black he lay in wait in the jungle for an elephant and in due course the beast made his appearance. Porchester, generally an admirable shot, fired and missed him, and, after a time, seeing no more of his quarry, slid down the tree where he was perched, intending to amble quietly homewards. To do this he had to cross a piece of bare felt which cut the forest in two. He was well in the middle of this shelterless tract, when he perceived that he was being stalked by the elephant, so he had no time to reload, and took to his heels with a speed he had never imagined he could compass. His rifle, his cartridge pouch, his glasses, his coat were all flung away as he ran for dear life, with the vindictive beast pounding on behind him. To him, as to the Spaniard, haste, on foot at least, had always been of the devil. Yet now, with life as the goal, it was he who won the race. He reached the friendly jungle, again climbed the tree, and was saved. To be chased by an elephant and escape, he was afterwards told, 
was a more unusual feat than to bring one down to his gun. Eventually, he became one of the half-dozen best shots in England, but never again did he go elephant hunting. The journey to South Africa was followed by another to Australia and Japan, whence Porchester returned in the early summer of 1890, happily just in time to be with his father, during Lord Carnarvon's last illness and death. The new lord was only twenty-three when he entered on his heritage, and save that his passion for sport kept him at Highclere and Bretby during the shooting season, and his love for the opera for a few weeks in London during the summer, he remained constant to his love of travel. He would suddenly dash off to Paris or Constantinople, Sweden, Italy, or Berlin, for long or short periods, returning home equally unexpectedly, having collected pictures and books and any number of acquaintances and friends, some of whose names, unfamiliar then, have since loomed as large in the world's history as they did in the young traveller's tales. Not that at this phase he was unduly communicative. He rather affected the elusive style as, when I saw the chief of the mafia in Naples, a style eminently adapted to wet curiosities which he would then smilingly put by, to the despair of a hearer who naturally wished to know how he came across that mysterious potentate. His sense of fun made him more explicit with regard to his efforts to achieve acquaintance with another lurid character. This was no other than the late Sultan, Abdul the Damned, with whom during one of his visits to Constantinople, Carnarvon was seized with a desire to obtain an interview. Carnarvon's wardrobe was never his strong point. He had no uniform, but he furbished up a yard jacket with extra brass buttons and hoped his attire would pass muster with the Chamberlain's department. His name having been submitted through the embassy to the proper quarters, he was informed that an equerry and a carriage would convey him to the Yildiz kiosk. On the appointed day the official made his appearance wearing, however, an embarrassed air, for he had to explain that H. M., though profoundly desolated, found himself unable to receive his lordship. Perhaps another day? No, the Sultan feared no other day was available, but as a slight token of his esteem he begged Lord Carnarvon's acceptance of the accompanying high order. Carnarvon declined the order, which he would certainly never have worn, and was left equally vexed and puzzled. It took some time to arrive at any explanation, but at last this was achieved. His father, the fourth Earl of Carnarvon, had travelled extensively in Turkey, with the result that he retained a profound horror of the misgovernment of that unhappy country and an equally profound sympathy for the persecuted Christian races. He became the chairman of the Society for the Protection of the Armenians and was regarded as one of their chief sympathizers. This was known to Abdul, though neither he nor his ministers had realized that this Lord Carnarvon was dead, and that the young man, bearing his name indeed, but otherwise not having inherited his political views or influence, was the English lord who had requested an audience of the Sultan. Abdul lived in perpetual dread of assassination, and in especial of assassination by one of the race he had so cruelly persecuted. 
he therefore jumped to the conclusion that lord carnarvon had asked for an interview with the purpose of killing him and firmly declined to allow the supposed desperado to enter his presence lovers of history like carnarvon are anxious to come face to face with those who for good or ill are the makers of history consequently he was genuinely disappointed at the failure to see one of the ablest though most sinister of these latter-day figures but the notion of his father of all men being regarded as a potential murderer was too ludicrous not to outweigh the vexation and he frequently had a quiet laugh over this side of the story in later life when he was largely thrown into their company the lord or lordy as he was called by the egyptians contrived to establish more points of contact with orientals of all classes from pasha to fellah than is usually possible to the western man but indeed he had an undeniable charm which when he chose to exert it attracted the confidence of men and women all the world over an instance in point which also illustrates the mingled shrewdness and whimsicality of his character concerned a visit to california on his way thither he paused in new york where he had promised a friend he would try to obtain information respecting a certain commercial undertaking the fashion in which he sought for information was to say the least highly original for it was of his hair-cutter that he inquired as to the person in control of the venture the hair-cutter having proved strange to say able to enlighten him on the subject lord carnarvon wrote a note to the financier in question requesting an interview in due course he was received by a typical captain of industry with eyes like gimlets and a mouth like a steel trap who must have admired the candour of the stray englishman asking him straight out for advice the magnate listened courteously to his request for information and then unequivocally urged him on no account to touch the stocks carnarvon looked hard at him thanked him and went straight off to the telegraph office where he cabled instructions to buy he then departed to california where he fished rapturously he delighted in all varieties of sport for tarpon six weeks later he returned to new york to find that the shares had soared upwards and that his city friend was in ecstasies at the profit made owing to carnarvon's decision he then asked for another interview with the financier and was again civilly received this time carnarvon explained that he felt he could not leave america without returning thanks for advice which had proved so profitable that it had defrayed the expenses of a very costly trip the magnate stared and exclaimed but lord carnarvon i advised you against buying oh yes i know you said that but of course i saw that you wished me to understand the reverse there was a moment's pause and then the great man burst into a roar of laughter held out his hand and say pray consider this house your home whenever you return to america and was your captain of industry the most interesting person you met on that journey his hearer inquired oh dear no was the characteristic reply the most interesting man by far was the brakesman on the railway cars to california i spent hours talking with him in eighteen ninety four lord carnarvon chartered the steam-yard caterina 
and in company with his friend prince victor dulip singh again visited south america on his return in the summer of eighteen ninety five on his twenty-ninth birthday he married miss almina wombwell the marriage was celebrated at st margaret's westminster the wedding breakfast took place at lansdowne house all was sumptuous the very pretty bride might have well set as a model to grows and the bridegroom's singular air of distinction was no less marked than her good looks moreover he had been persuaded to order and to wear a frock-coat for the great occasion but when they set off for highclere with its triumphal arches and its cheering tenants the bride herself wearing rose-coloured gauze bespangled with emeralds and diamonds lord carnarvon thankfully reverted to his straw hat and his favourite blue serge jacket which the devoted old housekeeper his mother's maid had much to her own scandal darned that self-same morning the funny little detail was eminently characteristic for though his fastidious taste welcomed all that made for the refinements of existence with regard to himself he preserved intact his own curious simplicity during the next eight or ten years the couple lived the usual life as it was lived in those cheerful pre-war days of young folk whose lot has been cast in pleasant places in eighteen ninety eight much to their rejoicing a son henry lord porchester was born to them followed in nineteen o one by a daughter evelyn destined to become her father's dearest friend and close companion in the last eventful and fatal journey to egypt about eighteen ninety lord carnarvon took up racing in which he soon became deeply interested for he was incapable of giving half-hearted attention to any business or pursuit ultimately his main interest lay in his stud farm where he was considered fortunate he won some of the big races many of the ascot stakes the stewards cup at goodwood the doncaster cup and the city and suburban he was a member of the jockey club undoubtedly especially as he grew older the human element accounted for a large proportion of the entertainment he derived from the turf apart from his friendships with those of his own world he was generally interested in the many quaint personalities known to him one and all by nicknames he never forgot and into whose domestic lives joys and anxieties he was initiated when the spare figure unmistakably that of a gentleman appeared in the paddock or on the race-course wearing a unique sort of low-crowned felt hat of a shape never seen on any head but his his throat in all weathers muffled in a yellow scarf and shod whatever the smartness of the meeting with brown shoes that fellow's darned brown shoes as a great personage noted for his observance of the ritual of dress once described them he could count on a special welcome as peculiar to himself as his dress and his presence this is perhaps the place to say something of his friendships which were indeed an integral part of himself no man ever laid more to heart polonius's axioms on that momentous side of life and undoubtedly it was with links of steel that he grappled to himself his friends and their affections tried as one of the most distinguished of these rites he was a very firm friend it perhaps took a long time before one was admitted to his friendship but once admittance was granted it was for always and for ever 
nothing would change or weaken his friendship those thus privileged knew well that even if separated for years the bonds of his friendship existed as strong as ever and when they met again they would be met as if they had never been parted from him it is indeed true that nothing could weaken his friendship one of the few occasions on which the present writer saw him break down was when he was forced to confess that a very dear friend recently dead had abused his confidence but even then he would not reveal what the offence had been he jealously guarded the man's reputation nor cut to the heart as he was would he allow the man's dependence to suffer for his fault it was only years afterward that by a mere chance his hero was put into possession of the facts and was enabled to estimate the magnitude of the injury and the generosity of the injured a man who is generous in thought is bound also to be generous indeed the number of lame dogs he helped over stiles will never be known for he religiously obeyed the evangelical precept not to allow his right hand to know what his left hand did only occasionally when he felt he could trust his hearer would his sense of humour get the better of his discretion thus one of his old tenants whose farm was rented at seven hundred twenty seven pounds eleven shillings four pence a year for three years in succession brought exactly twenty seven pounds eleven shillings four pence to the annual audit and quite honestly considered that he was entitled to receive a discharge in full when this happened for the third time and as evidently the land was going to rack and ruin lord carnarvon felt he must give the man notice it was not an over-rented holding he anxiously explained since no sooner was his decision known than he received an offer of one thousand one hundred pounds but he added i was so sorry for the poor old fellow who had spent his life on the place that i arranged to give him a sort of pension of two hundred fifty pounds i thought it would be a comfort but for the farmer's singular views on the balancing of accounts which appealed to carnarvon's sense of humour the little tale would have remained untold the same loyal fidelity which bound his affections in perpetuity to his family his sisters and brothers and friends made him an admirable master and a true friend to his servants he falsified rather amusingly the proverb that a man cannot be a hero to his valet short of a serious fault once a man entered his employment he remained in it for life but on the condition that he gave good service that lord carnarvon expected and that he got in the same way being courteous and considerate himself he expected civility in return he was seldom disappointed for as he said in his last letter to the present writer it is wonderful what a little politeness can do but meeting with rudeness he could give a rebuke which for being rather obliquely delivered was none the less effective in the war having occasion to go to one of the control departments he was received by a damsel with bobbed hair and bobbed manners who in a voice of utter scorn demanded to know on what business he could have come since no human being could enter the department save for the one purpose of obtaining the commodity in which the control dealt the question apart from the fashion in which it was delivered was an impertinence in the sweetest of voices lord carnarvon replied 
of course i have come to talk to you about the hippopotamus in the zoo after which speech his business was put through in double quick time a fine shot an owner of racehorses a singularly well-inspired art collector his privately printed catalogue of rare books is a model of its kind lord carnarvon was also a pioneer of motoring he owned cars in france before they were allowed in england in fact his was the third motor registered in this country after the repeal of the act making it obligatory for all machine-propelled carriages to be preceded on the high road by a man carrying a red flag motoring was bound to appeal to one of his disposition and he threw himself with passion into the new sport he was a splendid driver well served by his gift a gift which also served him in shooting and golf of judging distances accurately whilst possessing that unruffled calm in difficulties which often if not invariably is the best insurance against disaster though carnarvon enjoyed a reputation for recklessness he was in reality far too collected and had too much common sense to woo danger when the present writer reproached him for taking unnecessary risks he replied do you take me for a fool in motoring the danger lies round corners and i never take a corner fast this was probably true but the best laid schemes of mice and men gang aft aglay and it was on a perfectly straight road that he met with the accident that materially affected his whole life it was on a journey through germany that disaster overtook carnarvon he and his devoted chauffeur edward trotman who accompanied him on all his expeditions for eight-and-twenty years had been flying for many miles along an empty road ruled with roman precision through an interminable teutonic forest towards schwalbach where lady carnarvon was awaiting their arrival before them as behind the highway still stretched out when suddenly as they crested a rise they were confronted by an unexpected dip in the ground so steep as to be invisible up to within twenty yards and at the bottom right across the road were drawn up two bullock carts carnarvon did the only thing possible trusting to win past he put a car at the grass margin but a heap of stones caught the wheel two tires burst the car turned a complete somersault and fell on the driver while trotman was flung clear some feet away happily for them both the latter's thick coat broke his fall and with splendid presence of mind he lost not a second in coming to his master's rescue the car had fallen aslant across a ditch had it fallen on the road carnarvon must have been crushed to death instead of being embedded head foremost in mud with the energy of despair trotman contrived to drag the light car aside and to extricate carnarvon who was unconscious his heart even appearing to have stopped the bullock drivers knowing themselves in fault had bolted but trotman saw some workmen in an adjoining field saw they had a can of water and without pausing to apologize seized the can and dashed the water in lord carnarvon's face the shock set the heart beating anew and meanwhile the workmen who had followed hot foot in pursuit of their can arrived on the scene they had no common language but the awful spectacle and the chauffeur's signs were sufficient explanation and they brought a doctor to the spot he found a shattered individual 
evidently suffering from severe concussion, his face swollen to shapelessness, his legs severely burnt, his wrist broken, temporarily blind, the palate of his mouth and his jaw injured, caked in mud from head to foot. In fact, he was only just alive, but he recovered consciousness to put the one question which overpowered all else. Have I killed anyone? Was reassured, and lapsed again into unconsciousness. In this condition he was carried to the nearest pothouse, where Lady Carnarvon, who almost instantly rejoined him, summoned doctors and surgeons to his bedside. It was characteristic that almost the first words he murmured when he had recovered speech were, I don't think I have lost my nerve. He was right, he had not lost his nerve, but he had lost his health. Nothing that skill or care could effect then or later was spared, but throughout the remainder of his life he suffered from perpetually recurrent operations and dangerous illnesses. He bore these with a noble courage, and emerged mellowed rather than embittered from these trials, and the renunciations of work and ambitions curtailed. Sometimes he lapsed into long silences, seldom into complaints. It was a fine triumph of will, assisted by the sense of humour which was the warp and woof of his being. With regard to recreations his versatility came to his help. When agonising headaches made shooting too painful, he took to golf, at which he was scratch. When golf proved beyond his strength, he set himself to study the technique of photography, and, aided by his artistic faculty, he shortly became a master of the art. Indeed, in the words of an expert, Carnarvon's work was known in all parts of the globe where pictorial photography has an honoured place, and it is not too much to say that his productions were unique in their artistry and in the knowledge that he displayed in their production. Quarterly Journal of the Camera Club, Volume 1, 202, May 1923, page 13, by F. J. Mortimer, Fellow of the Royal Photographic Society. In 1916 he was elected president of the Camera Club. He appreciated the distinction, but the recognition of his work in this field that brought him the greatest pleasure was a summons he received during the war to the front to advise Royal Headquarters Flying Corps on the subject of aerial photography. The three days he spent at St. André went a little way, though only a little way, to console him for not being a combatant, and he rejoiced accordingly, though on his return to England he paid for the effort with a sharp attack of illness. He had always been attracted by mechanical inventions. It was under Beacon Hill, on his property, that Captain de Havilland constructed the first aeroplane, which in its perfected form of DH-9 became the chief fighting aeroplane in the war. Nevertheless, strive as he would, the renunciations involved were not inconsiderable. He was deeply interested in the elections of 1905 and 1910, and the House of Lords controversy of 1911, and he would probably have taken an active part in politics, but for his belief that the serious injury to his mouth and jaw must militate against public speaking. He may have exaggerated this drawback, for, when he delivered his lecture at the Central Hall, Westminster, on January 11, 1923, he was easily heard by a large audience. 
but he disliked doing things badly and his fear of being indistinct added to his many illnesses extinguished his hope of entering public life many of his friends both now and then regretted this forced abstention from the public life of the country sir william garstin whose verdict must carry weight writes lord carnarvon took a deep interest in all questions connected with english politics but it was the foreign policy of this country that more particularly interested him his extensive travels as well as his studies gave him a grasp of the subjects connected with world policy that is unusual in englishmen who live much of their lives at home perhaps the politics of the near east attracted him more than those of any other country his frequent visits to turkey and the balkan states and his recognition of the ties that closely bind england with these nations gave him a direct personal interest in the questions he certainly could and did talk well and intelligently upon everything connected with england's relations with turkey and the east End of section 2